The contents discussed on this show are the opinions of only the speakers and do not reflect the official views of the United States Air Force, Department of Defense, United States Central Command, or Air Force ROTC. This is the Screaming Blackbird Podcast, episode number 03. I'm your host, Cadet Matt Redford. Today, I'm joined by my cadet host, Cadet Carly Hicks. How are you doing today, Cadet Hicks? I'm good. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. So today, we had a missileer come on the show. It is Lieutenant Colonel George Chapman. goes by the call sign Ripper. And for context, Cadet Hicks is slotted to be a missileer, aren't you? Yes, I am. <laughs> How are you feeling about that? A little nervous, but I'm very excited after talking with them today. Yeah, this episode, Colonel Chapman filled us in with pretty much all there is to know about the early on aspects of the missileer career field, and he dove into some current affair issues as well. But before we get into the episode, we wanted to clear up some acronyms that he mentioned, just so you have a little bit of context to understand while listening to some of the knowledge he was dropping on us. So Kada Hicks, what were some of those acronyms? So the first thing um, to remember is AOR, and that stands for Area of Responsibility. Another thing, this is not an acronym, but this is something he mentioned, which is aide-de-camp. So an aide-de-camp is essentially a assistant to the boss, whoever that boss may be. Colonel Chapman explained to us that typically a person who has an aide-de-camp is either a two-star general or higher. So an aide-de-camp can do a variety of tasks that could be note-taking, scheduling, et cetera, et cetera. Colonel Chapman explained to us how a aide-de-camp is oftentimes a developmental position for either a company grade officer or a field grade officer. He even mentioned that there could be a one-star general who's an aide-de-camp to the Secretary of the Air Force. So basically, it's kind of like a priming job for the officer looking to get that development. A big thing with the missile career field are ICBMs, and that just stands for Intercontinental Ballistic Missiles. Another acronym or kind of an acronym, I mean, he says C2, that stands for CC, or Command and Control. And the last one that we want to talk about, talks about this when we get into his perspective in the Afghanistan exit, and that was the NEO, and that is an acronym NEO, or Non-Combatant Evacuation Operation. All right, so that should set the table a little bit. Again, Colonel Chapman dropped some amazing knowledge, perspective, insight, career advice, etc etc in this episode it's a little bit longer of one but i promise you it is worth your time all right here we go all right so we'll get started talking about just kind of your career how did you get into it um maybe go into a little bit of some of your assignments your favorite assignments favorite locations least favorite those types of things you want to just kind of get started with that perfect well i think it's it's good to highlight that Coming into the nuclear and missile operations career field, back when I came in, I commissioned in 2003. It was the space and missiles career field, so 13S. And back then, you did not require any kind of STEM degree to enter into those career fields. And for me, I that was my top pick. My, my father was in the Air Force. He was also a missileer. I was born in Great Falls, Montana, when he was doing his crew assignment up there uh, in the 10th and 12th missile squadrons. And then uh, my, my grandfather, he was in the Army Air Corps and then joined the Air Force when it stood up as a service. So I'm third generation Air Force, and uh, we've all been associated with the nuclear mission in, in some form or fashion. So 
I, I say that because heading, heading into the career field in 2003, my training at Vandenberg, it uh, consisted of more than just nuclear missile operations. We had to do, back then they called it OSPT, Officer Space and Prerequisite Training. And we, dis we discussed and learned about orbital mechanics and all the different orbits that satellites could take, uh, yada, yada, yada. Things, things that aren't as relevant to the 13N career field now. But that was part of my, my Vandenberg journey. I say that my undergrad in college was health sciences. So as a community health education major, it was something that interested me as an individual. And that didn't necessarily translate into my career field coming into the Air Force, but I did get the career field that I had asked to join. So from the time that I commissioned coming into from ROTC into the Air Force, going to Vandenberg, and then everything since has always been my choice to be in the missile community. So that paints a picture. That's not the case for a lot of folks. I don't know, Cadet Hicks, did you ask to go into nuclear and missile operations? Um, it was the very last one and I just needed like a sixth option and it was like the last one left. So I just clicked it. <laughs> I had yes. no idea anything of it. And then everybody's like, well, why'd you put it? You're going to get it. And I was like, well, no one told me. <laughs> well, it, it's, it's an interesting thing is the air force in their lists. They, they force you to put X amount of things on a piece of paper. And, uh, if, if it's on the piece of paper and you get it, then they consider that a success because you asked for it. <laughs> <laughs> Keep that in mind when it comes time for uh, voting for uh, assignment locations coming out of Vandenberg. <laughs> yes, sir. So no, that's that's good. So not a lot of people actually, uh, you know, request to go into nuclear and missile operations. It's not something perhaps that historically has been thought a lot about since the end of the Cold War. Especially, uh, I, I ended up joining ROTC in December of 2000. So this is pre 9-11. And then when 9-11 happened, it was after I'd already gone to field training, the, the world kind of shifted its focus. And it was, we've enjoyed the peace dividend that came as a result of all the nuclear arms reductions, the collapse of the Soviet Union. And now it was time to focus on counterterrorism and those kind of mission sets. And we did for a couple of decades. And so a lot of my company grade officer years was during the time frame where a vast majority of the Department of Defense were focused on deploying to other parts of the world to focus on the terrorist threat that existed in terrorist networks. And, and so it, you know, for a long time, felt like we were screaming to be heard and feel relevant. However, in recent years, you can see that a return to great power competition and competing with China and Russia and everything that's happening in the news today has made, made nuclear discussions, uh, you know, the, the talk of the day. And uh, it's at the forefront of a lot of people's minds and people have forgotten, you know, two decades is enough time for an entire generation of people serving in the military to forget the tenets of deterrence and, and what that means and how do you operate in an environment that's contested by a great power that wields tactical nuclear weapons as well as strategic nuclear weapons. And so I, I think that's, that's important to highlight. Uh, let's see, I've, I've, I tend to ramble. So let me bring it back to my career story. I joined in 2003, 
out of ROTC, uh, went to Vandenberg. I arrived there in May of 2003, and I went straight into training. Uh, currently, the training program at Vandenberg is a 100-day course, and so that's something that you can expect when you get there. You'll focus purely on nuclear and missile operations, so there'll be It'll be an immersive experience. You'll be there when they launch missiles, test missiles get launched out of Vandenberg Air Force Base. When you feel the rumble, uh, there's no doubt that you're dealing with one of the most powerful weapon systems on the, the face of the earth. Uh, as those things launch down into the South Pacific, then we do usually three or four test launches out of Vandenberg a year, but they also launch other stuff. You have uh, the Missile Defense Agency out there. You have other um, launch organizations that will send stuff into orbit out of Vandenberg. So uh, that'll be a neat experience for you to have. So I finished up my time at Vandenberg uh, after six months, went up to Great Falls, Montana. And there I began my, my first ops assignment, if you will. I was there for five and a half years. And that was by request. I extended there so that I could do some additional time. From there, I went down to F.E. Warren. I worked at 20th Air Force, which is the numbered Air Force that has responsibility for the organized train and equip of the missile uh, mission. And I was the aide de camp to the 20th Air Force commander there, did that for about 20 months. Around that time frame, when I was the aide de camp, this idea of a, an ICBM weapons instructor course started to surface. So a lot of folks are familiar with the United States Air Force weapons school based out of Nellis Air Force Base in Nevada. Uh, I was part of the second student class to go through that weapons instructor course, which is a five and a half month long program where you take the best and brightest of your career field and you take them and put them through a graduate level training experience. It's They, they say it's a leadership course disguised as an operations course. So you learn a lot about the the nitty gritties of doing operations and planning and coming together in multidisciplinary teams. But you also learn a lot about leadership. You're challenged cognitively. You learn how to push it up and uh, really meet the mission. From an Air Force perspective, it teaches you not only how does the Air Force and all the different operational capabilities come together to accomplish a, a mission and, and fight a fight, but it, it also gives you a, a glimpse into the joint perspectives and you'll start to get an idea of what joint air power looks like while you're at the weapons school. So it's a great broadening experience. After I went to the weapons school, I went back to F.E. Warren and I was a weapons officer, one of the first two weapons officers at F.E. Warren Air Force Base to graduate from the ICBM WIC. I did that for a year and then I was asked to go back to Nellis and teach at the ICBM weapons instructor course. So we, we did that, did that for a couple of years and then I had the opportunity to serve as the executive officer to the commander of the United States Warfare Center. And that was an organization that was responsible for all sorts of organizations as part of Air Combat Command. So when you're at Nellis working as a weapons officer, you have lots of close relationships with the Air Combat Command community. And so got to deal with F-35, got to work with meeting service obligations to initial F-35 IOC requirements. And it was a great opportunity. From there, I went to Air Command Staff College. That's where I met Lieutenant Colonel Whistler, Juice, great officer, very professional, also a fellow native of Great Falls, Montana, if I recall correctly. Great person and uh, 
great example. And, and I'm, I'm just honored that he would uh, reach out to me and ask me to be part of this, but spent a year doing air command and staff college. I took a political military affairs specialist track while I was there, because that's something that interests me. And then I stayed an additional year afterward to attend the School of Advanced Air and Space Studies, which is the Air Force's advanced study group that we offer to a select few. The year that I attended, we had 44 officers that attended, which included total force. So we had reservists and guardsmen, as well as international officers. We had about 10 of them attending that program. Very challenging program, great opportunity. And from there, I was selected to go command. Uh, I was the 320th Missile Squadron Commander back at F.E. Warren Air Force Base. And I did that for two years. It was a fantastic opportunity. I was blessed with weapons officers that were amazing in my squadron. Uh, DEO, ADOs, just crew members, all of them were amazing. We had a good run. We did a, an important test while I was there. We do operational tests at the missile, missile wings, everything short of uh, ignition of the first stage ignition on the weapon system to make sure that it is ready at all times and, and can be used if called upon. Uh, we, we were recognized as the best ICBM squadron in all of Global Strike Command during my command. So very proud of the team and, and the effort that they put forward. Leaving command, I was selected to be a senior U.S. fellow at the George C. Marshall Center. God, it's got a really long name. The George C. Marshall European Center for International Security Studies. Doesn't exactly roll off the tongue, but uh, it's great. So the uh, being a fellow, a senior U.S. fellow, I basically wore a suit and tie for a year. It was a joint U.S.-German partnership program that they have in southern Germany in Bavaria, nestled really in the foothills of the Bavarian Alps. It was a beautiful location. It was a great time to reconnect with family, professionally very rewarding to attend all sorts of different seminars and programs that would just help me understand, you know, what is countering transnational organized crime networks look like? Uh, how, what, what are the small, small country security concerns uh, for like the Baltic nations of Europe that they're probably really concerned about right now, right? The Estonias and Latvias of the world, uh, what, what does security look like to them? We got to tour all the major European headquarters from NATO headquarters up in Brussels, Belgium to USAFE and Ramstein uh, to USER, which is the Army European Command that is in southern Germany, uh, as well as DITRA having a presence there. So very, very eye-opening, very rewarding. And then from there, I was selected to come into a joint assignment. So uh, get joint credit here at US Central Command. I was sent to work in the Countering Weapons of Mass Destruction Division and Branch here in our J5, which they handle all the strategy policy and plans for the command. I did that for a year, and then I was asked to be the uh, deputy executive officer to the commander of U.S. CENTCOM, uh, General McKenzie, and uh, he's a, a four-star Marine general, a phenomenal leader, well-spoken, huge advocate of nuclear thinking. It, you, you wouldn't think that a, a a Marine would have that kind of appreciation for the nuclear mission set, but uh, he did time as the DDO, the, the duty desk officer in Washington, D.C., where he would be the one-star general to be involved in uh, missile threat conferences, nuclear threat conferences on behalf of uh, the folks in the D.C. area. But he definitely has an appreciation. And, when, and I'll, I'll throw this to you just for consideration. 
sometimes we lose fact that other people and other services care about the nuclear mission set aside from uh, the Navy because they have the boomers, right? But General McKenzie, when he sits down and he talks with general officers, three stars who are about to become four stars, he talks about future conflicts and the wars of tomorrow and reminds everybody that it is very, very likely that future conflicts are going to involve nuclear weapons. That it's kind of a genie that has come out of the bottle and you can't put it back in. And so when we think about the different parts of the world where nuclear weapons exist, and the, the countries that are trying to develop them, you have to understand what that means in terms of competition from a military instrument of power. So it's very much at the forefront of our senior leaders' minds and, and should be at the very tactical level as well. I think that in the nuclear missile operations career field, your conversations can range from the very tactical what you're dealing with right now to the very strategic and grand strategic level rapidly because it deals with what our policymakers and elected officials have to deal with when they deal with other nations and talking about how do we come together and do arms control? How do we provide security guarantees? You know, when when you have organizations and alliances like NATO, which is first and foremost a nuclear alliance, and you'll hear General uh, or the Secretary General Stoltenberg, you know, over his tenure has said that time and time again that NATO is a nuclear alliance. And you can learn about the nuclear burden sharing that is is associated with that. But, anyways, that's kind of my career, a little philosophy uh, along the way, and and perspective. But it's, uh, it's been a very rewarding almost 19 years. I'll, I'll get the opportunity to stick around for a few more. Uh, uh, on April Fool's Day, the Air Force is going to make me a, a, a colonel. Uh, so either it's an elaborate joke uh, that the Air Force is playing on me, <laughs> or I'll, I'll have the opportunity to stick around for a few more years and, and try and give back. My next assignment, just for your awareness, I'll be heading up to Washington, D.C., and I'll be the uh, uh, Air Force A-10 career field functional manager. So I'll be the functional manager for the entire 13N career field from DC half A10 perspective. And I'll do that until such time that uh, other opportunities present themselves. So with that, I'm going to go ahead and shut up for a second and let, let y'all talk and ask questions. And if I missed anything, I forgot I'm married. My wife uh, and I, we've been married for this year. It'll be 22 years. I have four children, a 17-year-old, a 14-year-old, a 12-year-old, and a nine-year-old. So, so I've been able to, you know, have a good family life, a good career life. And it's not all rose-colored lenses and not uh, happiness everywhere we go. There are challenges along the way, but I think that that's true to any profession in or out of the military and any career field that you're in, but having a good home team is certainly helpful. All right, over to you guys. Great. Thank you so much, sir, for that. Um, and congratulations on your promotion as well. And of course, you cannot forget your wife. I'm sure she would not appreciate that. Um, <laughs> but I kind of wanted to backtrack a little bit back to your right out of Vandenberg and um, your first assignment in Montana. Um, what did the average day look like for you as a missileer? Do you want to know what it was like for me then or do you want to know what it's like now? I want to know both. So we can do then and then now if that works okay. for you. Alrighty. So back when uh, we kept records on stone tablets, <laughs> we, uh, a typical missileer crew tour was four years back then. So your first assignment was a four year 
they call it a code 55, you were locked in and you were going to be at that missile base for four years. And it was split roughly in half. You'd spend half your time as we called it back then a deputy missileer. Now we just call it a missileer. And then uh, the second half of your time you had spent as a, as a crew commander. And there were opportunities to instruct as a deputy and to be an evaluator as a deputy. You could do that as a commander as well. So all these instructor evaluator opportunities presented themselves. And if uh, you were selected for those opportunities or identified as being a good fit for it, then that would change what your, your daily and really monthly routine would look like. So when we think about doing missile alerts back then, it was, hey, if you're a, a crew dog, and you're doing eight and oh, what that meant is you do eight 24-hour alert actions in any given month. And basically what that would look like is you'd show up on a, on a given day and you'd show up to mission planning in the morning around seven o'clock, seven, seven thirty to your squadron, the day that you're going to post out to the missile field. And once you finish all your morning briefings, get your classified information, grab your gear, you load up a, a vehicle, and then you would head out to the missile field. Roughly around lunchtime, you would change over out at the uh, missile alert facility. You go down to the launch control center and you turn over with the crew that had been out there for 24 hours. You'd go through that process. And then let's say if you went out on a Monday, around Monday, noon o'clock, you start your 24 hour shift in the launch control center. So you're down there, it's just you, one other missileer, and you're maintaining two person control in that launch control capsule. During that period of time, one of you has to remain awake at all times. And so you develop a crew construct between you and your crew partner of who's going to sleep, when, why. You have to take into account the different maintenance activities or targeting actions that need to happen so that you can make sure that two people are awake when two people need to be awake and that you still have enough time to get your crew rest because the next day you got to operate a vehicle and drive back to base. I was in the 490th Missile Squadron at Malmstrom, and so we had the furthest sites at that base. Uh, our furthest site on a, on a perfectly clear, sunny summer day on all paved roads, it took three hours to drive out to the site from the base. So it's a morning drive of three hours out to site, and then you do changeover, and then it's lunchtime, and it goes pretty fast. And then, you know, you got to make that drive on the way back home the next day. Now that's in good weather. Uh, in bad weather, you might find yourself getting a helicopter ride out to alert or back, but there are dangers and risks associated with driving in the wintertime in Montana, North Dakota, Wyoming. To include vehicles rolling over, a good friend of mine suffered a vehicle rollover and had a traumatic brain injury and was medically retired from the Air Force, right? So injuries can happen in all career fields, and, and there are some that are endemic to different career fields. So driving is a risk. Anyways, so go out on a Monday, come home on a Tuesday, you'd have the Wednesday as a down day, a recovery day, and then Thursday, you could end up going back out on alert again. And then you do that eight times throughout the month. In addition to the eight alert actions that you have, there were back then a requirement to do a monthly trainer ride. So we have proficiency trainers, missile proficiency trainers, the MPTs that we would go into. And basically it simulates the launch control center with all the different equipment, the keyboards, the equipment racks, the shock isolators, so on and so forth. And you would take a four hour trainer ride. 
roughly half of it was dedicated to weapon system and coding and maintenance activities. And then the other half of it was dedicated to emergency war orders. So in the missile world, when you say EWO, we're not talking about an electronic warfare officer, but we talk about emergency war orders. So those are the fast reaction checklists responding to emergency action messages that tell us how to posture, target, and launch our ICBMs if called upon to do so. And the, the ICBM is the fastest, most responsive leg of the nuclear triad. And so our ability to respond to those message traffics with high level proficiency is important. So you do a, a trainer ride each month. And then we were also back then tested three different times on weapon system knowledge, cryptographic coding knowledge, and EWO knowledge. And so those are three different tests that we had to take on a monthly basis. And back then, passing was a, a 90%. Anecdotally, there was an unspoken expectation that if you had below a 98% average on any of your tests, that uh, you needed additional study time. So that uh, that's missile days of yore. I will say that it is not like that anymore. Let's transition to today. Now, COVID has wrought a lot of changes in the world and how we do things. And uh, I think that food truck drivers across America were waiting for COVID where you could only have takeout delivery food. So they, they're loving life, right? Uh, but the, you know, Uber Eats and uh, food trucks weren't the only places where operations changed. And in missiles, we had to change the approach to doing operations because we had to isolate those who were doing the mission from opportunities to potential vectors for COVID and, and its variants. And so in order to have all the folks, actually, let me, let me backtrack just a little bit, the manpower requirement to do alert. So the structure of a missile squadron and a missile group and or wing is like this. Back when I was a squadron commander, back when we did missile alert tours, even as late as 2019, uh, when I left command, you had one squadron that had responsibility for five launch control centers. And each launch control center, where there are two operators operating, had direct responsibility for 10 launch facilities. Now, the launch facilities, LFs, are where the missiles are kept. Those are where the ICBMs exist. So basically, you have one launch control center where the officers are, command control for 10 ICBMs, and that's their first responsibility, but those systems are all interconnected with each other to create redundancy in the C2 construct. And so you had a secondary responsibility for an additional 40 missiles for that squadron. So the way that the Minuteman weapon system was created, it was one launch control center per 10 LFs, one squadron, five LCCs per 50 LFs. Does that make sense? Yes, sir, it does. Okay, perfect. So that, that is basically what a squadron and group looks like. And that's the way the weapon system was designed is kind of, it, it dictated how we go to war. Now, that's not how it's always been, right? So if you do your homework in history, you can go back and look at the Atlas D, E, and F, Titan One, Titan Two, and those missile constructs were different. They had different number of crew members, part of those crews. You had different amount of launch control center to missile ratios. You also had a, a, a different approach in terms of geographical facing. So right now, a launch control center is separated by 
I believe it's three nautical miles from any other launch facility or LCC. So everything's spaced out. What that does is it creates a difficult target for a would-be adversary. By having everything spread out and yet interconnected, it makes it so that anybody who wants to try and do a decapitating first strike against our, our present nuclear infrastructure, they, they've got to go big or you know go home. So if they don't bring it strong, then they're only going to make a dent and the, the mission will be able to continue on without, without any issues. So that's the layout. That's how we did operations back as late as 2019. With COVID, we shifted our approach. So now what happens is we do squadron alert rotations. And what that means is, let's say you go to the 490th Missile Squadron in Montana today, when you do a squadron alert, the entire 490th Missile Squadron, all the operators will post out not just to you know Lima through Oscar or uh, Kilo through Oscar, those five LCCs that were their responsibility, they will post out to all 15 launch control centers. So the entire missile complex that day in Montana is going to be operated by uh, missileers from the 490th Missile Squadron. Now, this was something that, you know, I, I'd written some white papers on this and, and, and shifting the idea how we do nuclear alert back in 2017 timeframe, but it took, you know, a pandemic to get us to rethink how we do it. I think that it's a very positive thing because when I was a squadron commander, I never had the opportunity to bring my entire squadron together to be in one place at one time, unless the other squadrons picked up the slack for me. So, uh, you know, because either I had crews who were posting out to alert, crews who were coming back from alert, or crews who were on rest status on recovery before going out to alert again. And when you have that kind of battle rhythm, a three-day battle rhythm, it's hard to justify bringing all your people together to do anything, to talk to your troops, to your people, without knowing that you're impacting the mission and operations. So now what they do is they do uh, week-long alert rotations. So basically think of it as one week on, two weeks off. And what will happen is the squadron that's posting out to alert, they'll send out two missile crews per site. So 15 sites on Monday morning, you send out 15 crews to those 15 sites. And then by Tuesday, a second set of 15 crews will go out. And then what they do is they still do 24-hour alerts, but you know, 24 on, 24 off. And they kind of high-five between the, the crew that's topside in the missile alert facility where there's, there's rooms, there's workout equipment, there's, you know, we're one of the few career fields that we have chefs on site who uh, cook food for us. And, and uh, you know, if you, you can go as healthy or not as you desire with those chefs, uh, watch out. But it's all at a reduced rate. So, but really trying to look after the quality of life for not only the operators who are out there, but you also have a facility manager, you have defenders out there who are responsible for the security of our nuclear assets um, above grade. And so you'll do that for the period of a week. And I believe I was talking to somebody from Minot yesterday. I think that Thursday is their changeover day. And so they'll do alerts based on Thursdays. Now, what does this do? It creates a lot of predictability in the schedule. 
you know when your squadron is going to go out to all 15 sites. What that also creates, though, is rigidity. So what I will say is under the 24-hour alert system, it was very flexible. Whenever you have lots of smaller moving pieces and parts, you can absorb a shock to the system better than you can when there are big blocks that you're working with. So from a scheduler's perspective, 24-hour alerts where people were rotating out in and out of the field daily, that was very dynamic, created a lot of headaches, a lot of churn. If you were the backup for an alert and somebody couldn't go out for one reason or another, you could get activated, you know, the morning of. And so maybe you had plans, but, you know, they got squashed because now you're going out to the field and you're going to be on alert. In the current construct, now you have a lot of predictability, but with that comes rigidity, right? There's still a large manpower requirement to do the mission, but you have a lot of predictability. And so in those two weeks of downtime, and you, you, you can do all sorts of things with your life. There's no requirement for you to arbitrarily be in the office and do things and just, you know, show face. Uh, it's your recovery period. So just like the Navy, the Navy uh, has a concept when they do their send folks out to sea, they call them blue and gold teams, right? They go on these uh, boats, these submarines. And if you're the blue team and you're going out and you're doing a three month, whatever, voyage out at sea. I don't know. It's, it's too Gilligan's Island for me, but if you're going out to sea, you know, you're, you're doing that. And then if you're on the gold team and you stay back home, then your focus is on training and currency and proficiency and life, the things that you got to do and family. And then when they come back, they swap out and go back to doing whatever they do at sea. So anyways, for the missileers, similar construct. Now you can't have the same level of flexibility and predictability in the same bucket, right? So big rocks means predictability, but consequently rigidity. So you have to be very strategic in your thinking and planning as a company grade officer of what is it that I wanna do six months from now? I wanna go on my European vacation or, hey, Canada's pretty close. I wanna see what's up north of the border or whatever it is that floats your boat. It just takes time and effort and planning and know that you will make sacrifices just like other people make sacrifices through deployments uh, overseas or if they're in a deployed environment, um, our sacrifices just look different, but they are sacrifices all the same. I'd say that from a nuclear missile operations career field perspective, when it comes to operations, a lot of the community struggles that we face are similar to what uh, those who fly Predators, Reapers, the, the unmanned aerial vehicles out of like Creech, Nevada, they have similar struggles because they have to man their platform. And then at the end of the day, they go home. So they're balancing both life and mission and operations all at the same time. And that creates struggles that, you know, are, are tough to handle. Not everybody handles it as gracefully as others. So things to consider, but let me, let me pan back out a little bit and talk about what to expect in terms of your first crew tour assignment. So Vandenberg still looks and feels a lot the same. You're going to go there. You're going to go through a hundred day course. I think they're looking at uh, making it a TDY vice, a PCS in the future, but I don't know, there are pros and cons to that. And that's philosophical at this point. So you go to Vandenberg, then you show up to your first ops assignment. And now your first ops assignment is caged into a three-year period of time. And that is split roughly 18 months in half. So you'll do your first 18 months as a missileer, and your job is to missileer. 
to get scar tissue, do reps. It's all about reps and becoming proficient and becoming an expert at your weapon system. The second 18 months, if you show that you are proficient and you've done all the, the steps and checks that you need to, to advance, you can upgrade to the commander crew commander position. And so the second 18 months of your time at the, your, your missile first missile ops assignment is as a crew commander. So the difference between today and what it was in days of yore is it's a three-year assignment and there's no instructor evaluator experiences mixed in there. So just like any aviation community, if you go fly a plane, let's see here, Cadet Redboard, do you have uh, cadet wings on your chest? Yes, I do, sir. I'm uh, slotted to be a pilot. Awesome. So just like any pilot should anticipate after they accomplish UPT and get slated for a particular aircraft, and then they go through the UQT, the unit qualification training for that particular platform that they're on, then they go to their first base, and it's all about getting reps. It's all about getting flight hours. It's all about becoming proficient in your trade craft. And you will see that that's a commonality amongst all operator communities. So we're non-rated ops. The only difference between rated ops, non-rated ops is we don't get paid to go fly in an airplane. We get paid to go on alert. So there's missile incentive pay that you will get by being a missileer as well. So I forget it's a, it's a few hundred bucks or something a month, you know, but enough to be like a promotion without the rank. And so you get this missile incentive pay, which is a, a, a great kind of, I don't know, morale, you know, incentive, financial incentive. Sometimes when you want to emphasize a thing, you monetize it, right? And you throw money behind it. So uh, your job is to go out and to missileer. Now, if you aren't able to go out and missileer, you're not going to get your incentive pay. It doesn't just magically come to you. You have to do a certain amount of alert actions for that to, to, to come your way. But you do that for three years. And then after the three-year point, then you look at going to your second ops assignment. Again, very consistent with other operational career fields. You figure out how to do operations at, you know, Mount from Air Force Base, Great Falls, Montana. Now you're going to go down to Cheyenne, Wyoming, and you're going to figure out how the Wranglers do it down south in Nebraska and northern Colorado. And so you'll go. But at this point, you will have the opportunity, your, your second three years is when you start creating those opportunities to be an instructor. So now you, you've spent three years becoming an expert at what you do. Now you're gonna teach others how to do it. And you're gonna be part of your squadron instructor shop and you're gonna teach other missileers how to missileer. And you can do that for you know 12 months or more if again, your currency and proficiency merit it. It's not automatic. There are people that I had that were on their second ops assignment when I was a squadron commander, that they never instructed because they did not have the qualifications, the proficiency to do it, right? You're not going to put an illiterate person in front of a classroom of people. This is philosophically or notionally, right? In front of a, a schoolroom of kids and teach them to read if they don't know how to read themselves. You want your best to instruct. And then if you're a great instructor, then you may be selected to evaluate. So to be an evaluator, you set the standard for the squadron and you help ensure your commander's intent for mission readiness and capability in your squadron. And that's, that's a highly visible position as well within the squadron. And then, you know, if you're like the, the cream of the crop, that third year of your second ops assignment, 
you start getting into the wonderful world of administrivia. You could be a flight commander. You could be a system flight commander. You can start moving on and doing other things, but that, that'll grow you as an officer and leader because you have to understand how those things work as well. So, uh, and then after that, after your first two ops assignments, then, you know, the world is yours. You can go off, you know, one of, one of my crew members, we sent her off to, uh, Ramstein, Germany for her to work nuke ops stuff up there. And she, I think she's traveled to like 41 different countries in her spare time while she's been there. I think her latest continent was Africa, but you know, that that's aside from the job, but a lot of times we like to think of uh, missiles in terms of, oh, great. You're going to go to Montana, North Dakota and Wyoming. Well, well, yeah, if you're going to do ops, that's where you're going to go because that's where the missiles are. But we got training bases uh, and, and a test squadron down at Vandenberg Space Force Base is now Space Force Base. Uh, you go down to Nellis and uh, you have opportunities down there. So Nellis is just north of the Strip. So, you know, I drove past Las Vegas every day on the way to and from work uh, for three years when I was stationed there. Here I am in Tampa, you know, working nuclear and missile stuff here. And they offered me a job to be... Uh, the division chief of their integrated air and missile defense, which is a huge deal. And the CENTCOM AOR, I wanted to get back to missiles. I've been away for almost three years, so I need to get back to, to Mother Air Force. So I'll be going up to DC to do that. But there are lots of opportunities. Stuttgart at UCOM, there's a nuclear ops division. Um, Shreveport, Louisiana, where the major command headquarters is at. There are a lot of opportunities there. Educational opportunities along the way are wonderful opportunities to kind of break from the norm and, and do things that are maybe non-traditional or help broaden your, your scope a little bit. And that goes for any career field that you're in, you know, take, take advantage and challenge yourself along the way. Uh, let's see, have I scoped what the first six years looked like? Yes, sir. You did. Thank you. You're making our job easy, sir. <laughs> okay. What next? What else you got? All right. So earlier you had mentioned the family work-life balance. What kind of advice would you give to someone going into this career field? I know it can be a little stressful trying to learn the job, but also balancing a family at the same time. Make sure that the home team is, is good to go. That's your foundation, right? And so if life is not good at home, that's going to trickle into your ability to do the, the, the job at work. In the missile community, I will say in the nuclear community, anybody who comes in direct contact with nuclear weapons I should say, like, not in a wartime environment, but if you do the job, you're on the PRP program, which is Personnel Readiness Program. And the purpose of the Personnel Readiness Program is to ensure only those individuals with the, the highest level of uh, confidence and trust come in contact with nuclear weapons so that if they, they, they aren't elsewise distracted, right? And so PRP is a prereq for you to be able to do the mission set. If you are going through a divorce and you're, or you're going through some mental health challenges or uh, you have financial burdens or somebody's blackmailing you or anything that would kind of impact your ability to focus on the nuclear task at hand, then you would be temporarily suspended or restricted on PRP. So when it comes back to the, the work-home-life balance, you know, Philosophically, you can talk about it in lots of different ways. It, some people talk about it being a balance. Other people say, hey, there's only one you and it's, there's not like a work you and a home life you. And so it's really more about synergy between you and how you 
synergize different aspects or harmonize the different aspects of your life. You know, you are one person. So what, who, whoever you are at work is who you are at home and vice versa. And so if you're going to go into work and treat all your coworkers with dignity and respect, and then at home, you need to be able to do that as well. You can't just make investments into your career and not into your home life. If you have a significant other, continue to court them and, and treat them special. You know, this, this feels very soft and, and uh, mushy. Is this the Valentine's Day episode? I don't, I don't know. <laughs> but, you know, you, you got to make sure that you pay attention. And, and, and you know what? A long time ago, a two-star pulled me aside and said that you got to be careful because the Air Force and the military, they're always going to keep asking for more. And sometimes we're victims of our own success. If you're really good at what you do, what is the reward for lots of good work? More work. And so you have to understand that, you know, what kind of life do you want? And where do you derive your greatest uh, fulfillment and satisfaction from? I've seen more than a few cases of people who approach, you know, the end of the runway, the end of their career, and they're all by themselves. For me, I don't want that. You know, I, I know that uh, I have a phase and I, you know, my wife and I very consciously and deliberately, we brought four children into the world and we want to be good parents and we want them to be successful as they head out into the world. And so it's not just about being successful in the workplace. Obviously, we want to be the world's best Air Force and we want to have stellar officers and we want them to grow and develop and be amazing. But if they have horrible home lives, those things that we sign up to protect and defend uh, by supporting and defending the constitution, you know, is our values, our homes, our families, all those things kind of get bundled into that. And if you don't value that, then I, what is it that you value? And, and, and I think that's uh, different for everybody, right? One of the questions that you may get asked a lot coming into the air force is why did you decide to join the air force? Right. And, and it's a good question to ask, and it's good to have an answer to that. The longer I stay in, the, one of the questions that I find myself asking others is, why, why did you decide to stay in? And I think that's a fair question to always ask yourself as well. Because if you become misaligned with what your life priorities are and what you're doing, then a house divided is not going to be able to stand. And you're the house in that story. So in terms of work-home life balance, just always pay attention to it. It's like a garden. You got to cultivate, you got to pay attention when weeds crop up and, and get rid of them. So I don't know. That's all I got on that. Thank you so <laughs> much. <advice>. Sir. <laughs> thank you so much. That was very deep. We definitely appreciated that and definitely need to hear it. So now I think you pretty much answered all of my questions I had about the missile career field. So I'm gonna let Cadet Redboard kind of transition into our next topic of discussion. Yeah, sure. sir. I just want to talk more about just like current affairs things, some aspects of your job working in CENTCOM. Really, I wanted to get your perspective on what the exit out of Afghanistan was like uh, working in CENTCOM and working with people who've had probably direct influence on the decisions being made there. So just from your perspective, sir, what was that like going through that? Well, I'll tell you, I was beside myself many times. I will say that CENTCOM is filled with professionals, both at the headquarters, but more specifically, all those people who were forward in Afghanistan at HKIA, the airport there that uh, we ended up doing the, 
the non-combatant evacuation operation out of. There, there was kind of an iconic moment where I was located in, in the AOR and I was with the commander and his office. And there was a period early on in the NEO where the perimeter of the, the um, airport had been compromised and you had people all over the place and to try and conduct airfield operations in that environment is not possible. And it was kind of a catch 22 scenario. So I remember when all the aircraft were taken out of the airport and you had to kind of reset, right? People outside the fence line, they see aircraft and they see them coming and going, coming and going, and they're not on it. And they get frantic and they're like, I got to get out of here because my world is about to change. And, and it was very emotional. It was very traumatic. Um, but it was necessary to pull all the aircraft out in order to reset. And that was best done after they could reestablish the perimeter at the airport and, and then send the C-17s back in. Um, but I remember, I remember standing in, uh, where were we? It was, um, we were in Qatar at the CENTCOM headquarters Ford. And the president was speaking in, on one television set, one large television set in the commander's office. And on another television set, we had unmanned aerial vehicle ISR feed showing us the runway at Ajkaya. And this was as we were about to bring the very first set of C-17s back in with additional manpower to help secure the perimeter. Right? It's a catch-22. We can't secure the perimeter because we don't have personnel. How do we get personnel there to secure the perimeter? You got to fly them in but we can't fly them in because we haven't secured the perimeter. So it was kind of this cyclical problem set of, okay, how are we going to handle this? So on one screen, you had the president talking with like flags in the background, patriotic moment. And he's talking about the situation in Afghanistan. On the other screen, you have a live feed of us about to get C-17s back in to that airport so that we could secure the perimeter and and resume the NEO in full force. And I'm sitting in there with the commander of US Central Command, the person who has decision authority over it all. And it was a surreal moment. I was, I was beside myself. I was like, well, how, how did a missileer end up here? <laughs> right? It made no sense whatsoever for me to be in that room, but I was. And it was this historic moment. Um, Seeing how the, all that played out, you know, we get we get intelligence reports, and we we have we saw movements in the country, as you know, and then they would make themselves known on live news networks of how the the Taliban was capturing provincial capital by provincial capital, and you know, here's here another one falls to the Taliban, another one falls, another one falls, and then they get to a, a large prison, and they're able to. Yeah, or a detention center, and they're able to free lots of their uh, compatriots. And then all of a sudden, you have thousands more people who were were the baddies, and all of a sudden, they got a job again, and it becomes this catalyst to a movement. And and it was very surreal. And at the joint headquarters level, we got to see firsthand where strategy meets policy. 
So when you talk about military strategy, it's informed by policy that is created by elected officials. In our form of government, that's the way it works. The, the military is subjected to civilian authority. And as a military member, you have to execute the operations that you're given that are driven by policy. And all that you can do at the most senior levels of our government is ensure that the best military advice is presented to those who are making the decisions. So that's not new, but it's true. And I will say that it was very surreal to, to see how that happens firsthand. You know, on, before I came into this job, I'd say that uh, if, you, if you started talking about appointments or engagements with the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff or the Secretary of Defense or the president, those would be viewed as like, oh my gosh, once in a lifetime thing. Those have since become like routine things. And so the, the level of engagement from the senior most part of our government to our senior most military leaders is, is very close. And a lot of people are challenged by what has happened in Afghanistan. And it kind of reminds me a little bit of when I was in your shoes and 9-11 happened. And my dad, he was a defense attache in Bishkek, Kyrgyzstan at the time. And we're setting up air bases where we would do bombing runs into Afghanistan. So my dad was basically working for CENTCOM at the beginning of our conflict in Afghanistan. And I, I was working for CENTCOM at the conclusion of our, our story in Afghanistan. And it's not over yet. There's still stuff happening there. But, but it, it was interesting because when 9-11 happened, and there was a national call for mobilization and doing something because of uh, you know the attack on our homeland. There are a lot of mixed feelings on the military's involvement in it and how things should be handled. And I remember myself as a cadet in ROTC mobilizing a, a student movement. I was part of the student uh, government at my university. That you know, regardless of what your feelings were about how things should be handled. We wanted to show support for the troops because they don't, they don't get a vote per se. They go and do what they're asked to do and what they're told to do. And that's driven by policy. Similarly, today, you, you may have a lot of people who have mixed feelings about how things have unfolded and what the military did or did not do. And I feel the similar strings getting pulled on where there are so many people, you know, to, and, and some that gave the, the full extent when they lost their lives. We need to show support to, to them. They're executing the orders that they were given, and they're professionals, and they're doing the best that they can, even though there's still a, a public discourse going on uh, and, and debate about how things should be handled. You know, and when you politicize things, it becomes polarizing. And in the military, we're apolitical right? We're apolitical and we try and do the job that we're given and we try and do it best and smart. And we got to take into account, you know, our national treasure is not just money and airplanes and missiles. It's, it's the blood of our, you know, the sons and daughters, our brothers and sisters, the people who are doing the job. So I don't know, I waxed philosophical on that one, but uh, I'm close to it and uh, seeing a lot of that happen. And it, and it trickled over into so many other AORs, right? The hub and spoke operations, the processing of uh, refugees, Operation Allies Refuge is the name of the, the, the operation, you know. That same missile ear that I sent to 
Ramstein, Germany. And one of my other buddies who uh, was one of my weapons school students who is working at uh, USAFE, they were there processing the, the, the refugees. They'd set up the runway in camps there in that part of the world. Again, what the heck is a nuclear and missile operations officer doing in Germany helping to process that? You know, you can't predict what the future is going to hold, but being a member of the military, you're going to do your best to serve your country in whatever capacity you're asked to do, as long as it's legal, right? So, and I wanted to touch uh, on one thing real quick, and it's kind of the future of missiles. It's more going back to Cadet Hicks. The future of uh, the, the nuclear missile operations business is about to go through another significant change because we are retiring the Minuteman III weapon system and we'll be sunsetting that weapon system and then bringing on board a brand new weapon system. GBSD is the program name. It's not the actual name of the weapon system yet, but it's the replacement ICBM for the Minuteman III weapon system. Some would say it's very long overdue and you're going to experience it in your career. It's happening right now. We, um, you know, I like to joke around a lot of times saying that there are no useful transferable skills that a missileer has in the, in the public sector, right? Like who's hiring a nuclear operator out there? But I'd say that that's also not true because you'll see, you know, between the, the Northrop Grumman's of the world and other defense industries, Johns Hopkins uh, Applied Physics Lab, there's so many different national labs and companies out there that are part of this major muscle movement to reinvigorate our nation's national nuclear infrastructure to bring GBSD back line. And it's going to happen fast. We're talking within the next 10 years. And we're going to have an entirely new weapon system onboarded. And that's going to take a lot of effort from all over the place. And it's going to require lots of critical thinking, good problem solvers, and lots of good leadership because we're using all the same physical spaces for GBSD, which means we have to decommission Minuteman 3 sites and locations, launch facilities, launch control center, missile alert facilities, and then refurb not refurb, we're, we're putting in new weapon system, new infrastructure, new everything in its place. And how you do that and maintain your nuclear deterrent capability, that's going to be a, a tough problem set. It's not going to be easy. It's going to be high-paced ops, but you're going to learn lots and see lots and do lots, something that's a once-in-a-generation kind of a thing. Because these missiles that we put into place, they're, they are a national capability and they are valued by our, by our nation, which is why we're investing in replacing the whole thing writ large. And I think that some of the conflicts that we see live in the world right now and escalating tensions in, in certain parts of the world re-emphasize that we need that background, that backstop. So for those that think that it's more of the same, it's not, there's, there's going to be all sorts of challenges. And then however long you stay in, you know, there's going to be jobs waiting for you as a civilian in the same business that'll leverage your military experience if that's something you choose to do. Yes, sir. Well, thank you for sharing that extra point there. I think that definitely, I mean, I'm sure Kada Hicks is yeah. excited about that. So I want to rewind a little bit about your time working in CENTCOM. I can imagine it's very high pressure environment and system. And I want to get a sense of what it's like working in that high pressure environment. That's like for you personally and your mental health and your family. I mean, just since the time that we reached out to you initially to do this podcast until now, there's been something that your office has been a part of that 
has made front page newspapers. So what is it like living with that? Well, it's interesting to see how a commander takes the different members of his team and mobilizes them to accomplish the mission. So whether you're in the headquarters and you're leveraging your public affairs director or your J3, you know, lead for operations or your J2, your head for Intel, how you bring all these different pieces together. Um, I'm, I'm assuming that you're talking about the high visibility strike that happened recently in the news uh, when uh, a leader of ISIS was taken out, right? Yes, so sir. that, that uh, without going into stuff that is still probably sensitive, that, that's not something that happened at the drop of a hat. There's very deliberate processes to make all that happen. And it is high pressure. You, you tend to stand where you sit. So for me, I'm part of a front office team. I'm not a decision maker. My job is to help presently as, a, as an executive officer to help make sure that my boss talks to all the people that he needs to talk to in the command, out of the command, in the interagency. I am considered a special agent. And so any level of classification material that comes through, I can handle it, see it, witness it, and that's fine. But it's not because I'm important. It's because my boss is important and I need to support him so that he's successful. He was hired to be the, the commander of US CENTCOM because of his 40 some years of experience in the military and lots of experience in the AOR. And he is well-read, very articulate and sharp as a tack. There, there is no mistaking commander's intent when, when uh, dealing with the commander of US CENTCOM. And, and he's a very gracious individual as well and a good human being. And at, at the end of the day, we're all just people, right? We put on uniforms and we have rank and we have customs and courtesies, but we are all just people. You know, it, there, there are times where the team has to look after each other to make sure that, hey, we got a family thing going on that we're balancing, even though the AOR, you know, ranges from like six to 10 hours ahead of us. And so their news cycle and the, the cycle of operations doesn't always match with our circadian rhythm. So I've always got my phone on my nightstand. It's always turned on if I need to go in and support the boss. It is high stress. But what, what you will find is that people, when they realize that they're in that clutch moment, they'll either fall apart or all their senses and skills become attuned and sharpened and to the point where they're able to execute their role and function to precision. And when you deal at the level that you do here at CENTCOM, where you have senior leaders uh, th this is a place that's heavy in lieutenant colonels, colonels, and general officers. It's not somewhere where you're going to find lots of captains or lieutenants at all, right? Onesie twosies. Here in the headquarters, you're dealing with people who have been around this for some time and they know what they're doing. And when it comes time to do what they got to do, I would say that they become sharpened to execute the mission. And it's not like a singular moment. It's not the first time they've ever done it. It's another time that they're doing it. It's a repetition. They've got the muscle tissue. So bringing it back full circle, right? If you're a, an aviator or an operator of any sort, you're spending those early years in your career developing scar tissue. You want to be able to develop the muscle memory, the, the know-how, the knowledge. That way you can later on, as you grow as an officer, you know, we, we don't grow specialists in the military. We, we grow generalists, right? People who have a lot of contact with a lot of things and understand how the different instruments of power come together to execute a mission. And so you spend the early years becoming the master of your trade so that later on, as you have opportunities to think about 
the instrument of power to think about what it means to be an officer, how we use the military, then you can apply that and you can think creatively on it so that you can move the football down the field, right? You don't want to keep doing the same thing over and over because the bad guys get a vote, right? And if they observe that we're consistent in how we do things, then they know how to counter or how to evade or how to undermine. So it is high pressure. It is high stress. I will say that a lot of times these executive officer type positions that work on the personal staff of a senior officer, they tend to be one year long assignments because they are so demanding. And it it would take a lot out of a person if they had to do that for multiple years. The closer and closer you get to working with any senior leader, I've now been on the personal staff for probably five different general officers of varying ranks. And I have the utmost respect for them because they are true public servants. They are giving their all to their calling and, uh, and to the service of the United States. And, and they, they give so much. So we try and make sure that we take care of the boss. We take care of each other as a small team in the front office, each in our own functions, and we get the job done. Yes, sir. Thank you for that. So earlier you mentioned that NATO, in essence, is a nuclear alliance. Can you talk about NATO's current state in uh, Ukraine's involvement with NATO and what that means for Russia and the threats that we're facing over there? Sure. So the Europe first, actually, stop. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read to you uh, one of my favorite quotes out of the National Security Strategy of the United States from January of 1988. Yes, sir. We're I love all right, and this is from uh, a scholar uh, who's cited in the defense strat- or in the security strategy, Walter Lippmann. So he writes this: the behavior of nations over a long period of time is the most reliable, though not the only index of their national interests. For though their interests are not eternal, they are remarkably persistent. There is no great mystery why this should be. The facts of geography are permanent. Thus, successive generations of men tend to face the same recurrent problems and to react to them in more or less habitual ways, end quote. So the reason I share that is because when you have a place like Europe with a very long history and a very consistent geography, you will see that nations tend to behave more or less in habitual ways. And so when we talk about NATO, NATO is, I guess, you know, an experiment in and of itself in this idea of collective security and Article 5 and what that means. An attack on one nation is an attack on all and everybody will come together. When I visited NATO headquarters, it was actually uh, September 12th of 2019. So it was the day after September 11th. I bring that up because the only time in NATO's history, where all of the flags at NATO had been flown at half-mast was when September 11th happened. And unanimously, all the members of NATO came together. So when we talked about Afghanistan, CENTCOM AOR, coming here, I didn't think that NATO would, uh, didn't think about NATO. But we know that NATO forces had a significant presence and mission set over in the AOR, they still do. They deploy, they participate, they're partners. You know, we have foreign officers who work as part of this command. We have a multinational conference center with representatives from 
just about all the countries in our AOR plus other framework type countries like France and Great Britain, New Zealand, Australia, Germany, you know, all represented over here as part of CENTCOM. Now, when you switch gears and, and look at NATO as an organization, NATO was stood up with this understanding, you have to go back into the history of NATO and, and the time and space, right? It was all about the Soviet Union, the Warsaw Pact, and the nuclear threat. So nukes haven't been around more than 100 years, right? So it's, it's, they are newer into our military vernacular. So in the grand history of flying pointy stabby things that kill people and blow things up, you know, from uh, arrows to bullets to cannons to uh, artillery to airplanes and missiles to nuclear weapons. Nuclear weapons is fairly recent in all of that, right? And so how, how we handle them, what we do with them, what does it mean to deter? It's all still debatable. People like to have debates on it. People like to talk. The talking heads will talk. When you look at NATO as an alliance, it was stood up when that nuclear threat was still very much alive and in all of Western Europe's backyard. So it was right there. Now, the way that uh, Europeans deal with Russia and nukes in, their, in, in that area, they, they view it differently than we do. So I think that we, we like to probably make it a bigger deal over here because it helps to justify certain things or it, it provides good grounds for us to maintaining our own capabilities and um, the alliance. From a NATO perspective, I think what happened is in the two years since the fall of the Soviet Union and the peace dividend that followed and the removal of all sorts of nuclear weapons from Europe, that became politically palatable. That, that, I mean, that's good news. We're, we're reducing the number of nuclear weapons. The risk is being mitigated. We don't have to worry about it as much. Russia's, you know, the new friendly Russia and, you know, countries with civil wars or frozen wars, they're trying to sort out their own business. Macedonia is now North Macedonia and they're part of the alliance now. So a lot, a lot of changes happened over time. And when that happens, different countries take different steps to maintain any kind of significant capability like nuclear weapons requires a significant amount of national treasure. If you look at Great Britain, they are the only country to have had a full nuclear triad, air, land, and sea-based, and then to unilaterally reduce their nuclear triad just down to one leg. So all they have now are submarines that have nukes on board, and they dedicate their nuclear capability 100% to NATO. So when they go out sailing, they are you know British troops that are manning that submarine and their, you know, their sovereign nuclear capability, but they make it available to NATO, period, right? It's there for the, their nation and their sovereign survival if they need it, but on a day-to-day -day basis, they belong to NATO. Whereas you have countries like France, they have nuclear subs as well as an aircraft carrier that have airplanes. They split it up differently. They have a land-based air-delivered nuclear capability and a sea-based air-delivered nuclear capability. Basically, what that means is they have airplanes that can deliver nukes, and then they can base them either on an aircraft carrier or on land. But France decided some time back that they were going to retain their nuclear capability strictly for themselves. It's their weapon. It's for their sovereignty. 
It's for whatever they decide. They're not going to let anybody else decide. When you look at a lot of the other nukes, and we call them non-strategic nuclear weapons based on range and how they're delivered for the air delivered ones that we offer up to NATO, those, those weapons are ours, the United States. They belong to us and they will only get used if the nuclear decision or nuclear working group at NATO decides that unanimously amongst all the allies that we're going to do it, that we're going to use them. And those could get loaded up on a U.S. airplane. They could get loaded up on an airplane by another country. It could be flown by countrymen from another country if it's a NATO nuclear mission. And so they're dedicated. We have uh, a handful of nuclear storage sites in Europe. We try not to talk about them publicly uh, and where they're located, but they are there. And the host countries don't like to talk about them lots either because their citizens don't necessarily think that nukes are the best. And so Europeans in general, depending on who you are and what your national history is, view nuclear weapons differently. If you're France and you've been invaded and conquered multiple times in the last hundred years, then having a nuclear capability that ensures your sovereign state and its survival, then you value nuclear weapons a lot more than, let's say, another state in, uh, in Europe. So without getting into details, you know, not everybody views them the same. You can look at uh, the, the Netherlands. They're huge fans of nukes. Why? Well, look at their history. They're also a small country. And what do small country security dynamics look like? And if you're part of a framework or an alliance where there are bigger partners with bigger capabilities out there that might ensure that nobody comes stomping through your country again, then that's a good deal. So NATO is a nuclear alliance first and foremost. When it comes to what's happening in the Ukraine, well, actually, step back. NATO as an alliance can work with different countries that are not in the alliance, kind of like how the United States can have bilateral security agreements and deals with any other nation as partners or friends or you know people that we get along with or the coalition of the willing, whatever you want to call it. So you can have NATO as an alliance that is working together with other countries in the region who may not be alliance members to ensure uh, regional security. And so as you look at the Ukraine, you'll see that there are a lot of NATO alliance members surrounding the Ukraine. I think it was what, four different NATO alliance nations border the Ukraine. You know, that that's impactful to them. And again, the long shadow of the Cold War that still you know, freshen in the senior leaders' minds of, hey, what is happening right now? And also, let's not forget that we still publicly criticize and recognize that Russia took the Crimea and invaded another nation's sovereign state, their borders, and it was publicly decried that you can't do that, right? You're breaking the rules and norms of the international system, and you're not being a good actor. Right? So we already know that they, they're capable of doing that, whether that's in the Crimea or in parts of uh, Georgia. And so people view it as, hey, could they do it again? Well, absolutely. They've already done it. So I, I think that that's important. If anything, it's a forging function You know, to, to look at the Franco-Prussian wars of the late 1800s. Having a common enemy can help bring a lot of people together, which you know, was the case of the modern German state. What's happening in the Ukraine right now and with Russia? Well, maybe that's solidifying some of the uh, internal seams and, and relationships in NATO and 
in the minds of some other states that uh, may not be part of NATO. So I don't know, time will tell. It, it might be a busy month. We'll see. Yes, sir. Sounds like it'll be a busy month. Yeah. All right. What else you got? Well, sir, that was an excellent and well, from a cadet's perspective, very thorough background of NATO and what's going on. I really just want to finish up with one more question. Uh, and that is, what are some courses of action that cadets could take based off the lessons learned in your career? Mm, okay. So driving back from alert one day, young lieutenant asks me, hey, sir, you're old. <laughs> what, what do you know now that you wished you knew when, when you were in my seat? Right. So that's the, the question of the, the day. And um, I remember, you know, I thought about it for a second because it was a long drive. And, you know, I responded back to him and said that you have more influence than maybe you give yourself credit for. So as you step out into your military career and you begin your journey, know that you get to influence that career. You are not 100% property of the state in the sense that you never get a vote. I talked through my career. I didn't talk through like a lot of the extracurricular things that I've done along the way, right? I, uh, I'm a language speaker. I, I speak Portuguese, German, Spanish. I have multiple master's degrees. You saw that. Air Force paid for every single one of them. There are programs out there like the Language Enabled Airmen program that I'm a huge fan of. So basically, the Air Force has been paying me money for speaking Portuguese, the Brazilian variety, almost my entire career. And it's ranged anywhere from 100 bucks to a month, a month to up to 400 bucks a month for doing what? For maintaining language proficiency. So it's called LEAP, Language Enabled Airmen Program. SAFIA, Secretary of the Air Force International Affairs. They're an office out there that uh, exists. They sponsored my second master's degree. So my first master's degree was in organizational uh, leadership with an emphasis in servant-based leadership from Gonzaga. And that was paid for by, uh, what, what do you call it? Just tuitions assistance, right? Everybody gets that for one master's degree. And then I wanted a second master's degree and SAFIA funded my second master's degree fully because it was in a regional language studies area. So I got it in international relations with a focus on Western Europe, right? Those, those are just some programmatic things. I got to do a language immersion program in Salzburg, Austria for a month. They paid me to go live in Austria for a month. It's like, wow, awesome. I got to go back when I was uh, going through ACSE. I got to go back to Germany and tour a lot of places because I volunteered to take advanced German along the way, right? And I was part of a cohort. Taking advantage of all the opportunities that are out there, challenging yourself, pushing yourself. And if you really want to grow, then you have to experience the, the growing pains and you have to seize the opportunities. Nobody became anything extraordinary by doing ordinary things, right? So if you want to work hard, depending again on what your goals are, in life and for your career, then seek out those opportunities and know that you have a lot more influence on your journey than maybe you give yourself credit for. Ask questions, listen, talk to people and seek out those opportunities, but not, not at the expense of whatever your primary job is, right? I did all those things. I, I, I did a lot of extracurricular things, but I never let my primary job suffer. So that there's a balancing in that and, and where you're going to spend your time and energy, right? I spent a lot of time at home working on a master's degree and, you know, late into the night with two young kids and going on alert or being an aide de camp to a two-star, you know, those are decisions that you make. So I don't know, I, I'd say uh, you have a lot more influence than you maybe give yourself credit for 
seize, seize the opportunity, make the experience yours. Don't just be a, a user, be a contributor, shape it and bring other people with you, right? Bring other people, make them part of your team along the way. And you'll find that you, you get to do a lot of cool things. Awesome. Thank you so much, sir. This is definitely a great opportunity for us to be here and speak with you today. I definitely learned a lot. I'm sure the people who are going to listen to it later on will learn a lot from this. Golly, they can last the entire time. Golly. <laughs> yes, sir. I wish we can keep going. I mean, the knowledge you were dropping was awesome. And thank you again so much for coming on the podcast. Kida Hicks, thanks for coming on. This was an awesome episode and I appreciate you taking the time out of your day, sir. Hey, no, it's been my pleasure. Take every advantage now to learn and everything that you gain now will serve you so much more once you commission and go active duty so good luck all right so that was it lieutenant colonel chapman and his entire career and what he has learned has just dropped it in this episode cadet hicks going into the missile or career field how do you feel about that episode um i thought it was very informative i know for missiles and when i found out that i was selected for this career field there's not much information out there online. A lot of this stuff is very outdated. So being able to hear a perspective from something that's currently happening, it was a great opportunity. Definitely, if you do not want this career field or this is something that does not seem interesting to you, do not put it on your Form 53. I made the mistake of, it's not really a mistake because I'm very excited about it now, but I did put it on Form 53 without having any idea what it was or what I would be doing. And then I was selected for it. So if it's something you're not interested in, I don't recommend putting it down, but it's something you're I'm sure it's going to be a very rewarding career, and there's a lot of opportunities both um, inside the military and out, as he talked about earlier. Yeah, and like you heard on the episode, Cadet Hicks put Miss Lear down as her sixth option, and she was picked up for it. So that just goes to show you that if it's on there, they could take you. Yes, absolutely. And just to provide a little bit of further context on the Form 53 for those that may not know, if you're not going into a rated career field, you will put down your job preferences based on your Form 53. So it's basically a form that asks for like every college class that you've taken, any language proficiencies that you may have. Um, There's a few more uh, other topics that it may ask you for, and then it will collect all that information and basically spit out every job that is available for you. Yep. And then you would just go in and select which jobs you would like to um, possibly go up for. Right. So for you, if you remember, based off of what you inputted, did you have a lot of choices for your career fields? Yes, I have quite a bit of a business major. So a lot of the jobs I was qualified for were of that sector. So logistics, personnel, things like that, um, financial management, any businessy area. And then they had um, missile air down. So I kind of just threw it on there as a wild card. I was like, well, let's just see what happens with this. But here we are. <laughs> and you got the wild card. I did get the wild card. <laughs> All right. Well, Cadet Hicks, your career will be a wild card then. Yes, I'm sure it will be. All right. Well, then I think that's an episode. The Screen Blackbird podcast episode number 03 is in the books. I just want to say thank you again to Cadet Hicks and Lieutenant Colonel Chapman. Thanks for a great episode. We will catch the listeners on the next one. Thank you all.